30 minutes. You notice, oh, there, there were no rocks to hand out this morning. When we were at a, a church leaders meeting and our pastor Stephen Cooper was announcing this new series, he said he was gonna hand out rocks to, to everyone. And I told him, that better be a darn good sermon. I don't have that level of confidence, so I decided I'm not letting any rocks go out to the congregation this morning. <laughs> I just have to be prudent. I don't know about you, but I really feel good this morning. In my heart, I actually jumped up on the stage. <laughs> but, but my body said, let your heart jump, but you walk. <laughs> but I really did feel like jumping up on the, on the stage this morning. Uh, this is just such a great day. I hope you had a good Christmas. I hope it's continuing in your heart, not just December 25, but the celebration of the fact that God came to earth for us is a thing we celebrate every day. We don't need to wait till December 25 to do that. I'm going to talk this morning about uh, change versus gospel transformation because this is the time of year when New Year's comes along and we make these uh, wonderful New Year's resolutions. Uh, I belong to 24-hour fitness and I always hate January and February because it's so jam-packed <laughs> with all the people who made these New Year's resolutions to work out and I just can't wait to March because half of them are gone. <laughs> it's back to the normal population by March and April. Uh, so that's what I wanna talk about this morning. So will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that uh, change is something that happens to us all, but that transformation is something that you do. And, and your transformation in our lives is a divine constant, which you do with loving kindness, wisdom, and persistence. Uh, and we just ask that you give us a new understanding uh, of the changes that you bring in our lives for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our text uh, this morning we're, we're, we're the only church that's able to have a biophysicist operate the projector. That's, that's how good we are. Let's give them a hand. That's how good we are. We're going to have a nuclear scientist come and sweep the floors later, but this is a... So our text this morning is two verses from Philippians. Um, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, this, these two verses pack so much in in terms of Paul's emotional life and the change that we he changes he went through that we can zoom right by it um, without seeing it just like this morning I was a little late and I zoomed right by Bobby and Connie Garrett only out the corner of my eye I said oh I think that was Bobby and Connie go Shoom! and that's what we can do with a verse uh, like this so let me start off by talking about the difference between change and 
gospel transformation. Change is about becoming, uh, being or becoming different, other than as you are. And as you know, change can be good or bad. You can become a better person or a worse person. But neither Jesus nor his gospel are part of the equation when you talk about change. Change may make you religious, but it will not make you a follower of Jesus Christ. Gospel transformation means being transformed into the image of Christ, having more and more of his values and his character. Unlike change, gospel transformation has everything to do with Jesus and his gospel. So the first thing I wanna look at is how gospel transformation enables us to deal with a negative past. And so I wanna look at Paul's example. When Paul says, forgetting those things that are behind, we have to look at those things that are behind. And one of them is his old identity. Let me read from Philippians 3, further on in this passage where Paul describes who he used to be. He said, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So here was the way Paul used to be. In other words, he was saying, not only was I a Jew, I was a good Jew. And not only was I a good Jew, I was counted among the best of the Jews. I was that top 1%, religiously speaking. I obeyed the law to the point that I could call myself blameless and no one could openly disagree with me. So let's look at the obstacles to Paul's transformation. His old identity as a super righteous Pharisee, a model Pharisee. This was a guy who was so secure in his self-righteousness that you couldn't tell him anything. And I don't know, but I suspect that some of you have met a church person like that. You may even be a church person like that. You look down on others. You used to drink. Ah, but you don't drink anymore. You used to run around with women, but oh, you don't run around with women anymore. You used to curse and swear and cause havoc Oh, but now you're a sweet peacemaker wherever you are. And, and you are so self-righteous, or not you, that person can be so self-righteous that you just hate being around them. And they will say those little snide things, oh, you weren't able to clean your house today. Oh, I saw you at, when I was driving, I saw you at a bar. How are you? <laughs> so he had to deal with his old identity. And now having been transformed, he must deal, listen with this, to the hatred of his former colleagues. I have to understand that as a good Pharisee, 
Paul would have nothing to do with Gentiles. If a Gentile ate on the plate, even if washed, Paul would not use it because it had not been ceremonial clean, ceremonially cleaned. He would not enter the house of a Gentile. He would not have a conversation with a Gentile in public. This was part of the Pharisees' tradition, not part of the law, but part of the Pharisees' tradition, which they had elevated to the point of the law. And so now his colleagues see him cavorting with, talking with, eating with Gentiles, and they hated him for it. He was a turncoat. He was a traitor to everything it meant to be Jewish. In addition to the hatred of his former colleagues, he also faced the resistance of the early church. All of this reasonably so. When God met Paul on the road to Damascus, he told him to go into the city and a, and a man named Ananias would meet him. Now God had previously gone to Ananias and said, uh, Saul is going to come to you and I want you to minister to him. Now here is Ananias, a good Jew having converted to Christianity, dedicating his life to the Lord, says to the omnipotent, all-knowing God who created canyons with his fingers, calls the stars by name, have you made a mistake? This, this is Saul you're talking about. And I know in your divine omnipotence in governing the universe, you may have missed the fact that this was a persecutor of the church. And God basically said to Ananias, you do what I say and you minister to Paul. So <laughs> Paul, this is, this is like a former leader of the Ku Klux Klan being called by God to go into the back community to minister. Not any community, the community in which he used to terrorize. And you can imagine how black people would receive him when he comes with the news, I've come to tell you about Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. So he's got his old identity pulling at him. He's got the hatred of his former colleagues on him. He's got the suspicion and resistance of the early church. And, and he's got the opposition of Gentiles who, like Governor Festus, thought Paul had been driven insane by much learning. Now, the Gentiles know, now wait a minute, you're a Jew and a Pharisee. You won't even enter my home. You won't eat my food. You won't have a conversation with me in public. And now you come to tell me about God? So all around him, his past is dogging him. You have to understand that when he went to minister in um, communities of Jews who had converted to Christianity, that there were those whose family members he had taken away. There were those who had family members in hiding because of Saul or Paul. To make matters worse, all these groups were correct. The other Pharisees correctly recognized that Paul had turned on them, that he was denouncing the very values that were at the core of who they were as Pharisees. The Christian community had a right to be suspicious about Paul because he did in fact persecute their family and friends. And the Gentiles were reasonable in thinking Paul mad because he was talking about the true God and salvation by grace 
to peoples who believed in many gods, all of whom required that you earn your salvation. And yet Paul's transformation empowered him to achieve astounding success in spite of the obstacles of his past. Look, here we are today, 2,000 years later, all of us are Gentiles. If you're Chinese, Asian, Hispanic, African-American, Korean, Caucasian, we're all Gentiles. The Bible describes the world in two groups, Jews and Gentiles. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, studying Paul's letters so that we can learn who God is and how we ought to, re to relate to him. In our text, Paul says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Can you see the emotional power in those words? Can you just hear Paul's trembling response to God when God says, I'm calling you to minister to the Gentiles, knowing that he would have to face all of these three groups, his former colleagues, Jewish Christians he persecuted, Gentiles he formerly despised. He had a right to be the object of their hatred and suspicion. And there must have been times in his life when he woke up in the morning with shortness of breath, when he faced a congregation and swallowed hard, seeing in their eyes hatred, suspicion, distrust, disdain, and knowing that God had nonetheless called him to preach the gospel to them. And so the Greek word translated here as forgetting also means neglecting. When we neglect something, we pay it no attention or little attention. This concept of being neglectful is very instructive. When we look at the things in our past, and I'm gonna focus on two types of things. Our failures or sins of the past, things that we have done. But also those things that have been done to us. The things for which we have been made victims. So with regard to either the things we have done in the past or the things that have been done to us, humanly, we have one of two wrong responses. Either we try to pretend the past did not happen or we nurse it. When we pretend that it did not happen, we try to stuff it away. And it's this creature in a sense that's sort of growling at the door and we whistle a little louder, trying to pretend it's not there. It's like the person who whistles through the graveyard. But that thing still has a grip on us and it may unconsciously express itself in our behavior and in our thought life. It may be unconscious, but it will express itself. And so you may be a husband whose um, mother was hypercritical and you just suppressed your anger about how your mother dealt with you. And now your wife says, well, honey, did you take out the trash? Why are you always telling me about the trash? 
There she goes. Where did that come from? And you may not even know where that came from, but that's that process of stuffing a hurt or pain from the past, not dealing with it, stuffing it and trying to pretend that it doesn't exist, and it always comes out in some way. That's a terrible response. But the other response is equally bad, and that is we just nurse it. We go over and over and again, and it just, every time we look at it, it just grows larger. It's like, if you have weeds, you fertilize them and you water them so they become bigger and more tenacious weeds. Now we know that that's a foolish thing to do, but yet spiritually, we often do that. We rehearse the wrong that we've done. We rehearse the wrong that has been done to us. We go to God and we repent again, we confess again, we ask God again to forgive us, as though when we went the first time, God did not forgive and he did not, what does he say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The faithful part, we understand, he is faithful. But for years I didn't understand the phrase, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I was on a walk and I said, God, I don't understand why you put that in there, why? And then he made it clear to me, God has already punished that sin. He did that by putting it on Jesus and crucifying Jesus on the cross in my place. The sin has been accounted for. It has been fully punished. If he punished it for me, that sin on me, it would be unjust. Even in our human law, there's no double jeopardy. If you have been cleared of a crime, you cannot be charged with the crime again. That's even in human law, which by the way is based on, on the Bible. And so God is faithful, but he's also just. He's already punished that sin by putting it on his son, Jesus Christ. You and I are the ones who nurse it. We can't bring it back to life because it's been dead and buried with Jesus, but we act as though. Boogeymen don't exist, but we can give them life, can't we? So that if we hear a little rumble in the closet, that boogeyman is about to come out. Yesterday, um, I, uh, I, this is a note I made from uh, 2009. I take my dog, Boone, to the dog park on uh, 30th and Grape. And uh, there was a woman with two beautiful greyhounds. And if you've ever seen greyhounds run, they run like water pours. It's just a beautiful thing to see. But one of them ran on three legs. And I noticed this and I said, well, is something wrong with that one? And she said, oh, well, when he was young, his leg was broken and he was in a cast for eight months. I said, well, how long has he been out of the cast? He said, oh, he's been out of the cast for two years, but he, he's still afraid to put down the foot. And I said, my goodness, that's what 
some Christians do. God comes and he says, look, I've forgiven you. The, the thing that was done to you was a sin, but I'm going to make your life new. And all I need you to do is put down your foot. And we go running around the dog park of life, not trusting God, and we won't put down the foot. So some Christians are like this. Um, Jesus has given them a new nature. They can be free from some besetting sin, but they refuse to trust their leg. They won't put it down and continue to walk as an invalid when they don't have to. So I'm asking you, Paul is forgetting what lies behind, being neglectful of it biblically, so that he can answer the call of God to discipleship. What from your past is holding you back? Are you, in what way might you be like that three-legged greyhound? Are you wasting the healing God has given you in Jesus Christ? What in your past is causing you to feel disqualified from carrying on the work of the ministry. Well, not only does the gospel transform us in dealing with the past so that we can become neglectful of them, but the gospel transformation enables us to press on. Because the text says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now the Jews rejected Paul so he could not disciple the Jews. And therefore he turned to the Gentiles, which is what God had told him in the outset. But his, his, his heart in the beginning was to obey God in part. The gospel was the heritage of the Jews the Jews are the ones who had received the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. They are the ones who had received the law. They are the ones who had received the Bible and had kept it preserved. They are the one who had preserved the knowledge of one God when all the rest of the world was polytheistic. It was their rightful heritage. I, I know you've called me to the Gentiles, but I've got to go to my people. I, and he keeps going and going until they, after rejection, after rejection and rejection, he finally says, forget it. I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm going to obey God. Paul, the former Pharisee who despised the Gentiles, became known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul did this by learning to press on and not let his past failures, his past sins, continued to disqualify him from the ministry of discipleship. I want to read you a little story about John Cleary uh, out of the paper. John Lee Cleary, 50 years old, was ordained last month to serve within the six million member Church of God in Christ in hopes to educate people on the destructiveness of division and inequality. Quote, when the day comes for me to make my journey home, I hope to be remembered 
not as the former national leader of the Ku Klux Klan. But as a man who saw wrong and tried to right it, to build a better world to leave for our children, both black and white. Close quote, Cleary's words. Though the historically black denomination has a few white ministers, Bishop George D. McKinney, who ordained Cleary last month, told the Tulsa World newspaper, it is not every day we get a former Klansman. And Cleary went on in the interview to say, to answer the question, what happened to you? And his answer was, God changed me. And I had to forget, I, mean, I can't believe his words, I had to forget the things that were behind me, which were wrong and they were sins, and recognize that Jesus died for those sins for me. And so I turned my back on them and I turned my face to God, who loved me and saved me. So here's Paul going to the Gentiles, like sending a former member or leader of the Klan to minister among black people. He must minister to people who are suspicious of him. He must minister to people he formerly despised as unclean under the law. In other words, he had to cross cultural boundaries unthinkable to the normal Jew and definitely to a devout Pharisee. I remember in reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. In the first volume, the kids go through this wardrobe into this magic land. And they come across Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they start having this discussion with them. And there's all this discussion about Aslan, the lion, returning to Narnia. And the children listen with rapt attention, but everybody's speaking in hushed tones. And so the little girl asked Mr. Beaver, well, is he, is he good? And the beaver said, oh, yes, he's good, but he's not safe. God will always call us out of our comfort zone. Uh, I had the chance, I'm, I'm so pumped up because yesterday I spent the whole day ministering to 60 young Chinese professionals at Sequan Resort. And we were talking about cross-cultural ministry. And they had all, were all there because they had dedicated themselves to minister in China. Half of them lived in China and half were ABCs, American-born Chinese. And we were having this discussion. And I said, it is right and good for you to dedicate yourself to the ministry in China. And I told them the story about Aslan, God. He's good, but he's not safe. Do not be surprised when God calls you to do something that you find uncomfortable. I said, for example, God may call you not to China, but to Japan. Now you have to understand for the Chinese, Japan is what the Klan is to blacks. 
because of what happened in World War II. So your heart must be ready to, like Paul, strain forward, strain forward to the calling of God in your life. Not prejudge what that calling will be. So let me ask you, how is your current circumstance affecting your availability to God? Can you disciple only people who look like you? Do they have to be white? Do they have to be beautiful? Do they have to be Korean? Do they have to be Hispanic? Do they have to be old with a paunch? Are you available to God to disciple whomever he brings into your path? And that is what Paul means when he say he's straining for it. You have to understand, you are, we can so miss this. For him to sit down at a meal with a Gentile turned everything in, in his preceding 30 years up on its, on its head. He, I wouldn't be surprised if his stomach got queasy the first time. Let me ask you whether you're in a, a wrong relationship according to the gospel or wisdom. Are you engaging in conduct that is wrong or harmful according to the gospel or wisdom? Are you seeking change rather than transformation? Because change you will have. Transformation is the gift that God is giving if we are open to receive it. So Paul is forgetting what's behind so that he can engage in the ministry of the discipleship. He's straining forward right now so that he can engage in the ministry of discipleship. And now we look at how gospel transformation transformed Paul so that he was hearing and acting upon God's call to discipleship because Paul could have easily folded up his tent and gone home, or, but he, he didn't. He pressed on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call. I like the King James translation better. The high call of God in Christ Jesus. By our culture's standards, Paul had a negative self-image, which only worsened with time. Uh, the Bible doesn't talk to us about a good self-image or bad self-image. That's cultural. The Bible talks to us about a correct self-image, which is acknowledging our sins and the greatness of God. So in Paul's early ministry in 1 Corinthians, he described himself this way. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That's a negative self-image by our standards. And it only got worse because in the middle of his ministry, in Ephesians 3.8, he said this about himself. I am the very least of all the saints. So he went from being the least of the apostles to the least of the saints. From a worldly Western standpoint, his self-image is steadily declining, but it doesn't stop there. At the close of his ministry, he says this about himself. 
I am the chief of sinners. First Timothy. And yet this man, self-image, really became transformative because he realized it wasn't about him, it was about Jesus Christ. I remember having to go on a deposition to someplace in New Jersey and it was a little town and it was, the motel I was staying at, it was just pitch black and they had those curtains that are impervious to light some motels do that. And I pulled the curtains shut and it was just too doggone dark in there. I started seeing things that weren't there. So I pulled back that part and just kept the shades drawn. And it was dark, I really couldn't see anything, but I, I could have a sense of some shapes. But as dawn came, indistinguishable shapes became clear as a couch, a desk, a television, and by dawn I could see everything in the room. So it is in our relationship with Christ. In our early time with Christ, where his light has not flooded our hearts, we don't see all our sin. We still, I mean, when I was a Christian, I really thought, a young Christian, I thought I was a pretty good person. I mean, not the top 1% in the church, but I mean clearly the top 10%. And then as I grew in Christ and more light was shining in my heart, I saw sins that I had never understood before. I had never recognized. And now that uh, I am much older in Christ, I feel like I can beat Paul here and say, I am the chief of sinners. And yet I have never felt closer to Christ in my life. So how do we know that we are experiencing gospel transformation rather than simply change? I want to give you some evidences that you can look at in your own life that Paul underwent a gospel transformation. First, Paul was able to minister effectively notwithstanding the baggage he carried. You hear me? Notwithstanding the baggage he carried, he ministered effectively. Second, he recognized the difference between change and gospel transformation. Change is inevitable, and I said it can be good or bad. Change is not, or change, and another word for change is self-reformation, which is a trap for the godly. What I do, how I change myself. Let me read from what the writings of uh, one Christian uh, theologian, Walt Hendrickson. As a follower of Christ, you know that self-reformation self is futile. Having declared spiritual bankruptcy, you came to God asking him to live his life through you. He is your life. You live, by day, you live day by day in dependence upon his strength and presence. The worst thing that could happen to the non-Christian is for him to be able to solve his own problems. Nothing is more deadly than self-reformation. The great physician heals those who cannot heal themselves. 
If people conclude that they can solve their own problems, or at least learn to accommodate those problems in their lives, they lose their incentive to turn to Christ for help. And that is a shortcut to hell. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that this dependence of a child is a prerequisite for entrance into his kingdom. God can use many ways to force the unbeliever to express the dependence of a child in turning to Christ. As you pray for those outside of God's grace, plead with God that they will not resist the Holy Spirit through acts of self-reformation. Now, how else do we recognize that Paul recognized the difference between change and gospel transformation in his own life? Because Paul forgot the things that are behind. He pressed on toward the prize of the call, high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Second, he lived in brokenness and dependence on Jesus Christ. He had to say, I prayed three, God, three times for God to take this condition away from me. And God said, my grace is sufficient for thee. Therefore, Paul never departed from the gospel. He processed all the issues of his life through the gospel. Third, he lived in the spirit of repentance. His heart was always tender toward God ready to repent when the Spirit revealed areas requiring repentance. Fourth, this is particularly important today. Paul recognized his need for Christian fellowship and accountability. We need other Christians to speak into our lives, to enable us to see the things we are too blind to see. Let me ask you, are you willing to forget the things that are behind and press on toward the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Are you ready for gospel transformation to make you a disciple? Are you willing to be discipled? Are you willing to take the next step after being discipled for, and that next step is to disciple others without saying, I am disqualified for what I've done in the past. We are all disqualified. But we work not in our name, in the name of the great one who is qualified to do all good things, the maker of the universe. Are you willing to be discipled and to be a disciple because you are pressing on, pressing on toward the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus? And here's the beauty of pressing on toward the prize. We are not in competition with other Christians for the prize. The prize of which Paul speaks is a prize that God has set aside completely and exclusively for you alone. It is your prize. I cannot grab it. Satan cannot grab it. Only I can grab hold of this prize. And he is saying that if we press on, now listen, he, notice he didn't say, not say, when I succeed and the calling 
of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He didn't say, when I succeed. He said, I'm going to press on. So that means, ladies and gentlemen, that you and I, at times, are going to fall flat on our faces. We are going to be abject failures. But we press on, not for success, but for the prize. And all God wants us to do for the prize is to press on. He doesn't say you have to lead X number of people to Christ. He doesn't say you have to disciple X number of people. He says you have to press on toward the prize. Toward it. Not reaching it. You hear? Just press on toward it. I like many guys, I guess, I'm a sports, I won't say addict. That would be too much. I'm a fan. And I like to look at those shows where they show the practice drills. And one of the practice drills is that particularly the linemen push against a sled and they have weights in the sled, typically another coach is standing in the sled and they hit the sled and they're supposed to drive it, drive it, drive it, practice and press onward. That is what God is calling us to do. We don't have to reach any line. We just have to press on toward the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Because the reason we only have to press forward is that Jesus has already accomplished the work. We are working or playing in a game where the outcome is already determined. The game is won. It is locked up. It cannot be lost. All we need to do is press on toward that prize. And that prize is discipling people. Let's pray.